Thank you. I don't like to hold a mic. I think my background in music makes me, I just feel like I should be doing this the whole time I speak. So uh, as uh, Luis Palau, the evan great evangelist, he's the Billy Graham of South America. Um, he always introduced me as, this is my friend, Josh. He looks like a criminal, but he's a godly man. <laughs> All right. Um, well, it's, hey, it's so great to be with you guys today. I'm actually on a four-month sabbatical currently, and I'm technically not supposed to be preaching. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, I break the law. Uh, and that's why we're saved by grace. So um, I'm going to talk with you guys today about something that is kind of central to everything uh, that has informed uh, my faith over the last 22 years. I came to faith at 27 years old, 1999 in Seattle, Washington. Uh, my wife, Darcy, uh, came to faith two years after me. Uh, and she had been a believer for six months before we were called into full-time ministry. I am a true amateur preacher, amateur theologian. And I love the word amateur because amateur is the French word for lover. And it just means I would be doing it whether I was being paid for it or not because I love it. And so uh, I actually, um, just so you know, yes, I love to read voraciously. But that's probably just due to the fact that I was such an incredible underachiever and barely made it out of high school and never went to college. So it flows out of insecurity and pride. So just know that. Um, okay. Well, I am in the process this week. I'm actually being blessed um, by Todd and Denise. I'm going to go up to their cabin at Arrowhead to wrap up the last two chapters of my book that my publisher has been asking for from me for the last six months. And I say, you cannot rush art. But that's without him even knowing whether or not it could qualify as art. So. Um, I'm going to open with a short story that comes from the first chapter, uh, and I think it'll give us a setup of what I want to talk about today. And this story is entitled, You Didn't Want to Be With Me. And I want to open with a quote from one of my favorite writers. Her name is Mary Carr. She's kind of the queen of, of uh, literary memoir, and she wrote in her book, Lit, a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. In 1975, a toddler with unblinking eyes, too large for his disheveled head, clung so tightly to his teddy, his hands had turned a whitish blue. He was staring alone in his fear at a dirty window from the back seat of his father's rundown car at a volatile scene he did not understand. You could hear his heart beat almost as loudly as his parents' muffled screams as he watched the scene through tears, his mother like a wild animal hitting his outraged father. This is my earliest memory. It is vivid, but out of body and silent when I play it through in my mind, making it all the more unsettling. My parents were divorced when I was one, and on this vo visit, dad was drunk and had put me in the back of his car Mom later told me I kept crying, please don't let him take me, Mommy. 
while my father yelled, he is my son too. I can see the scene, but I don't hear it. What is etched upon my mind is two people fighting over me, in front of me, but I myself am invisible. Despite the silence of the remembered event, even today, I find the emotions of it still present and making an impact. 44 years later, while visiting my father in his rundown, filthy, cigarette-stained home in rural Alaska, between drags of camel reds and sips of vodka, greasy hair stuck to his forehead, highly flammable breathing tube in his nose, dad speaks to me about this incident in a crackling baritone voice that never seems to have enough air. I'm still angry at you for that, Joshua. Angry at me for what? That you didn't want to be with me. I was two. I'm still angry. As with most conversations with my father these days, this conversation had suddenly come to an end. There's a stifled and abrupt quality to his speech as it moves without warning between nostalgia, worry, agitation, and sudden silence. I'm sure this is due to a lifetime of substance abuse as well as the impact of years of isolation. Words are spoken and then abandoned as he retreats back into an interior solitude which matches the loneliness of the landscape in which he lives. You didn't want to be with me. How could he say that to me? The words pressed down on me with a near otherworldly significance, not because they were true, but because they were honest. He felt rejected, angry, and alone, and he had pushed those feelings down and hid until now, finally, he had confessed. He had released his grievance, and we were left with the sadness and absurdity of the words, which stood between us as cold and oppressive as the permanent twilight in sub-zero weather outside. But as I sat in the discomfort of that smoke-filled space, an understanding began to slowly wash over my frustration and what I can only describe as a holy intervention. As dad stared out the window at the snow-covered ground fighting to breathe, I saw him in his brokenness as a child, and there I found compassion. My lips unlocked and my tongue loosened. I'm sorry, dad. It's okay, Joshua. I'm just having a hard time at the moment, son. I know, Dad. I love you. I love you too, son. I'm glad you're here. Your old man is usually tougher than this. I know, Dad. End of conversation. And there was peace mingled in the sadness as we sat there, quietly watching one of Dad's favorite shows, Little House on the Prairie. And there on the screen was Pa Ingalls pleading in a field for God to save his son. It seemed like some strange portent and I pleaded silently the same for my dad. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes in his introduction to the letter, a verse that has continually come back to me again and again. As I meditate on the power of the gospel in contrast to the disillusionment within the church, Paul writes these words, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about those three things, because he says basically three paradoxical ideas. You are known for a faith that works. 
you are known for a love that labors. You are known for a hope that is patient, that endures, that doesn't give up. I find an incredible amount of power um, as well as challenge in those words. Because we often think in terms of faith and works as two things that are opposed to one another. We hold tenaciously to the idea that grace, God's one-way love toward us, a love that comes to the unlovable, not because of anything in us, but because of the very nature of God himself. It is his nature to love sinners in their sin. His holiness means that he's not content to leave us there, but that is where he meets us. The gospel is always down to earth. It's never symbolized by a ladder, us attempting to climb rung by rung to some sort of achievement or arrival for the Christian life is not about arriving, it's about knowing. But I think that this picture of grace, as important as it is, and it is, in my opinion, the central thing, the central note that should define the church of Jesus today, it still manifests in something. It is meant to draw us into an intimacy with Jesus that leads us to a desire to see others drawn into that same intimacy. When I think about the church, we have to remember that the church is the only institution in human history that exists for the good of those outside of its walls. When I share a story like the story I just shared about my dad, Alexander, a man who basically chose a life of drugs and alcohol over his family, who always thought he would get rich, but he was always trying to do it without working, who moved to Alaska when I was in high school and lived literally as a hermit over the last 10 years in a cabin all by himself outside of Soldatna on the Kenai Peninsula in a little nothing town called Sterling. And he sits alone in this cabin all day, every day. The pizza delivery guy picks up his vodka and cigarettes for him and he essentially lives on about $500 a month and eats a pizza a week and his main diet is vodka. He's been in the ICU probably 20 to 25 times in the last two years, uh, always on the verge of death, and yet somehow the man is literally like a cockroach. He cannot be killed. He just, he is resurrected and he goes right back to the same old thing. And we ask ourselves the question when we meet people like Alexander, and most of us have some kind of Alexander type person in our lives, there might be someone here who is an Alexander-type person. Uh, but the fact is, is that we meet these people and we think there is not a chance that a person like that would ever surrender to Jesus. I mean, he's chosen a whole lifetime of abuse. Why would he change at 65 years old? What's, what, what would cause a man? I mean, nothing's going to change in his current situation. He can't walk. He sits in a recliner all day. He likes to watch Bonanza. Little House on the Prairie and Fox News. That is his diet. That is his family, his entertainment. He smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and he drinks because he's afraid of dying. 
which is interesting because it's the thing that's killing him. And he becomes a picture for me of the nature of the brokenness that is actually all around us. It's true, I live in Portland, a city that I planted a church in 2009, May of 2009, Door of Hope, uh, at a time when Portland was like considered the coolest city in the United States. And, you know, it's the, it's the place where young people move to retire. Uh, Portlandia, I never thought was funny because it was far too close to the truth. Um, and and the, the fact is, is, it is like this weird bohemian hipster universe all unto itself. Its progressiveness surpasses any city, and I've been to every major city in the United States, it surpasses any city I've ever been to, with the exception of maybe like Copenhagen uh, or Stockholm. Uh, its progressiveness is something that is embraced and celebrated within, within absolute smug pretentiousness that is convinced that all of you down here and everywhere else in the nation don't get things right. But we in Portland really understand the issues. And, Clearly we do, because our city now is one continuous homeless camp um, that has been overrun by political unrest. We're the whitest city in the United States, and yet all of my white friends were definitely more angry over racial injustice than my black friends, which I got a call from one of my best friends in New York, and he goes, I don't think your people are helping me, uh, which was a sad assessment of the reality in which we're dealing with. And it's easy to lose hope. And there was a mass exodus during COVID in which people began to leave Portland and because they couldn't handle the, you know, the, the uber woke culture of our, of our city. And so they choose Idaho. They move instead to the white supremacist capital of the world. You know, it's fantastic, whatever, I don't care. The, the fact is, is sin is wherever we are. And if you're alone, in a, on a deserted island, you haven't escaped sin because that's what you are. And the, the fact is, is that Eugene Peterson said it the best. If we would remember that people are sinners, we wouldn't be surprised when they sin. And when we talk about grace, what we are talking about is God's intervention into the impotence of humanity. God's coming down to meet us in our brokenness, that Jesus himself is identifying not just with our humanity, but he's actually identifying with something even more, in some ways, disturbing and, and mysterious. He is identifying with our brokenness, our lostness. He on the cross is the forsaken God. He is the crucified God. And I always think it's important to remind people, one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century is T.F. Torrance, a Scottish theologian, Trinitarian guy, um, who famously said, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. What we see in Jesus is a revelation of what God is like and what God thinks about us. And what is the first words that Jesus uttered when his hands were nailed to the cross and his feet were nailed to the cross and he was placed between two common criminals? Father, forgive them. This was not a gentle son getting between an angry dad and rebellious kids. This was a gentle son revealing the heart of a compassionate father whose heart is to forgive. Jesus said, I only speak those things which please the father. It is the father's desire to save the very people that killed God. That is good news. 
Because when we hear a story about a guy like Alexander, or we look at the insanity. I, I had a guy from Texas write me, and he goes, I just saw a documentary um, that you were in, uh, myself and a guy that used to be the teaching pastor with me at Door of Hope. His name's Tim Mackey. If you guys have ever seen The Bible Project, that started out of Door of Hope. And he's, I mean, he's a dear, a dear friend, one of the most gentle souls I have ever known, um, humble. And I'm sure many of you have been blessed by that ministry. It's, it's massive. I knew I was going to lose him the moment I saw the first video. Um, but I, I mean, I think that this, this reality of Tim and I just had this heart, like we want to believe that Door of Hope can be a place that truly brings the love of Christ to a city that everyone says is beyond saving. And in this documentary that we were in, he did a, he did a talk on, uh, uh, on how do we read the Bible, uh, why the Bible matters. And then I did a conversation as a pastor in a, in a progressive post-Christian city. And just to give you an idea of how post-Christian Portland is, uh, my son, Henry, who's 20, uh, and my daughter, Hattie, who is 16, uh, have lived their whole lives in the urban core of Portland. Neither of them have ever had a single Christian friend in their schools. Like, and almost all of the kids they know, I would say all of them, literally have never been to church in their lives. Many of their parents haven't. So it's, Portland was a, a place where Gen Xers flocked to in the in the 90s and started families as a as an escape from the what they saw was the archaic practices of their parents in the baptist or presbyterian or methodist churches they grew up in so portland was like a refuge from that cursed thing called morality and it, it and it's always been kind of the wild west it's always been a city that is set on the fringe of things i mean the sticker that you see in portland is keep portland weird and um, that's not something we have to try to do. Um, and, and so there's people, people write it off. Like that is, that's Babylon. That's like the new Sodom and Gomorrah. This is like the place that's beyond salvation. This guy emails me and he said, I watched your video and the discussions around what God is doing through the city. And I just want to repent that I didn't believe that there was a chance that the gospel was even happening there. And yet the gospel is moving powerfully in the city of Portland in spite of all the brokenness. In fact, I keep getting frustrated that so many of my friends are moving away to get away from what they see as the pagan influence upon the church when they don't seem to realize that the worst enemy the church has ever faced is from within its own walls. That wolves are almost always sheep that don't realize they've become wolves. <laughs> and that all sheep are ultimately thieves and murderers who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So our metaphors are actually more of a true fairy tale than they are a metaphor. And, and so this, this picture, I, I remember talking with Tim about this, like what is the goal of Dwarf Hope? Okay, we've got momentum, we're exploding in growth, but do we want the Christians from the suburbs to drive in or do we actually wanna reach the Alexanders and the broken people of a city like Portland. And we just made it a decision that if church means anything, it has to be centrally based upon the desire to gather around the living Christ 
that he, we might be a witness to the reality of his presence to a lost world. And so my thing is we have created the most comfortable space possible to hear the most uncomfortable message possible. How do we maintain orthodoxy, a fundamental belief in the doctrines that have been held tenaciously by the church since its foundation? How do we not collapse to the pressures of, of the progressive nature of our city? And it actually has been pretty easy to do that because I've, why would I collapse to the pressures of a city that's proving its own inability uh, to achieve the things that it thinks it can achieve? In fact, every motion to move us further away um, from uh, the center has actually led to greater and greater destruction in the city. And that can happen if you move too far to the right and if you move too far to the left. That's why I, I am apolitical, which has been uh, the cause of much distress within my church because as young people started getting saved and coming to Door of Hope, their parents followed. And then COVID hit, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I feel like the game show host for Family Feud, uh, where it's like parents are coming to me like, I think my kids are Antifa. And I'm like, and then the, the kids will come to me, I think my mom's a Nazi. And I'm like... I'm like, sweet Lord, I'm pretty sure you've never met Antifa because we still don't even know what it is. And you for sure haven't met a Nazi. So like, it, but the sad divisions happening within the church and the willingness of millennials to walk away from the church as they, over COVID, discovered that it's pretty awesome to not have to go anywhere on Sunday. And so the classic thing that we would hear, and so I'm not your pastor, I think it's lame if you don't come to church. Because I don't think that Jesus actually saw it, and I'm actually not joking. I think that Jesus declared that the church would be his conduit by which the gospel would reach the ends of the earth. There is no individual reality for Christianity. Our ability to even know and be known demands that we be in relationship. Even more importantly, the church is not primarily a place where you are to get your fill of how to be your most fulfilled person right now. That is the natural outworking of pouring out your life for the good of those around you. And I am sure everyone says like, this was a place where revival happened before. And, so, and it did. But I'm kind of ready for the next revival. And I promise you that you are surrounded by lost people that desperately need to know that on their worst stinking day, Jesus is crazy about them. So let me just give you a breakdown of, of these three statements. Robert Capone, uh, he was definitely an outsider, radical grace thinker, uh, once wrote, if the gospel is about anything, is it about, it's about the God who meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. Uh, what a powerful, powerful statement. The church's primary goal is not to go around making people feel guilty. We are in the business of forgiveness. And we saw that. One of the great de declarations that I think is damaging the church more today than ever before is that we have elevated justice over grace. And grace is always unfair. So they actually come into conflict with one another. Social justice is the big thing. That, 
that's what the church's default setting in a city like Portland is. We don't want to be rejected by the city, so we're going to give ourselves to social causes instead. It's not that causes don't matter. We should care about the oppression of the poor. We should care about the homeless issue and the meth and, and fentanyl problems that we're having in our city and all those things, of course. But they should be informed by the proper center, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He's not lifted up through our, through our social activities. He is lifted up primarily through, through the, the lifting up of the life, death, and, and resurrection of the, of the living Christ, that we can't separate the cross from, from the man Jesus. In fact, everything we know about Jesus is ultimately defined through the cross as the center. Paul himself said, I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, and yet conversations about the cross seems to be absent in many churches today. We have replaced the cross with spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines and the newest. I mean, I think people are more interested in the Enneagram than they are the cross. And all Enneagram is proof of is that your parents didn't let you read Harry Potter as a kid. That's all it's proof of. That was a joke, but it is true. It's a painful joke. It's a cutting joke. Someone asked me, like, what number are you? And I'm like, I'm a zero, man. But my wife thinks I'm a 10. <laughs> what does it mean to have a faith that works? You know, when we think about the vocabulary of the Christian faith, it's, it's something that becomes so familiar that we, we quickly lose the depth of meaning. When you talk about faith or great faith, what do we even mean by that? When, when Paul says, you are known for a faith that works, in, in other words, it's, it's this reality of a faith that, that is somehow visible to the world. And when he speaks of the world, he is speaking of the church's witness to the place in which God has placed it. There is the Big C Church, but there, the Big C Church is represented locally, physically, in places all over the world as God has put us as, as kingdom outposts to be a revelation of what is coming in full when Christ returns. But I think that we have to ask the question of what does it mean to be a people that live by faith? Now, if I was to ask you to define faith for me, you know, what would you say? You know, if people talk about faith, I, I, if I could use an example uh, that I heard forever ago by some revivalist preacher from the 50s I thought was really helpful. He's like, if I say I have faith uh, in Bigfoot, what do I mean by that? And he's saying, he says, well, that's saying that I believe that Bigfoot exists. But then the second question is, well, what does that do for you? What is that? A you believe he exists, but what does that actually do? How does, that's not a faith that works. That's just, that's just, I believe that that is real. It's like people saying, I believe in aliens. Well, so what? How does that change anything? Um, and the, but the same could be said to us as Christians. You say you believe that Jesus is the son of God. Well, so what? What does it actually mean? What does it translate to? How does it actually define you? Who were the first people to identify Jesus as the Messiah? Actually, that's a misleading question. Who were the first thinking beings <laughs> that identified Jesus as the Messiah when he began his ministry? I'm talking about him being presented as a baby, but in his ministry, it was demons. It was demons that recognized that he was the son of God. Are they objects of his saving grace? Not from what I can tell in the scripture. 
They knew who he was, but there was no surrender to him as Lord. In fact, they willfully chose themselves over God. And whatever they are, <laughs> they are, they are that which is against God and that which is against his kingdom. And yet they fully believed that he was everything that he said he was. And I think that this tells us something about faith, that faith, as I would like to define it for you, is a disposition toward God that allows God the right to be God in and through your life. Faith is an attitude toward Christ that allows Christ the power to be himself in and through us by his spirit. In other words, if I put faith in an airplane, there is this law called the law of gravity that holds us to the ground. That law is broken by the law of aerodynamics. It's intervened in by the law of aerodynamics. And when we get on a plane, we are putting our faith in this thing to this can to take us from point A to point B. And many of you might be afraid. How many of you are afraid of flying? Don't like flying? Okay, quite a few. Uh, I used to be terrified of flying. And, and that says that my faith in the plane was not great. But it didn't matter because if I got on the plane, regardless of the level of faith, whether it was mustard size or melon size faith, it, I still got to the same, I, I got to the same destination as everyone else on the plane. However, the size of our faith, the greatness of our faith defines the enjoyment of the trip which that speaks to something that's really important about faith. Our faith grows as our intimacy with the thing that we have placed our faith in grows. You who have brought chairs today, and this is kind of a bad illustration because they're really low to the ground, so there's not much danger, but you didn't think about before you sat down on it whether or not it was gonna hold you up. It just was an assumption. That's a, what I call a childlike faith. That's an unconscious faith. It's, an act, it's active but you're not even thinking about it because you are so familiar with the object it doesn't even cross your mind. That's how my children were when they were little. Hattie, I literally could tell my daughter who was fearless, not because she had no fear, but because she had an, over, uh, an oversized faith in her daddy's ability to do anything. She literally thought I was Superman. So if I told her to jump off the top of a two-story building into my arms, she would have done it probably without hesitation because her faith in me, and it wasn't, she wasn't thinking, I'm gonna exercise faith now. Her focus was not the faith that she had in me. Her focus was just on me, which increased an unbelievable faith. I think this speaks to the reality of the gospel. One of the things that is so challenging in the church today is that often our faith is defined by what we do, not who we know. And that is deeply problematic. In Matthew chapter seven, when uh, Jesus says, and many will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, that is a, a title of familiarity, an appropriate title. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many signs and wonders in your name? Did we not serve in your name? And he does not deny their activity. But what he says is, away from me, I never knew you. The most terrifying word that could be spoken to us by God is, I never knew you. That I never knew you is not Jesus saying, I don't know, I don't know you, because he knows everything. What he is saying, though, is, I do not know the you you chose to be. In other words, you never surrendered to me, 
and the essence of sin is us defining for ourselves who we will be without any sense of obligation to Jesus. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'll serve Jesus in the way that I want to serve him. I'll do for him what I want to do. And you can do tons of wonderful things in the name of Jesus. But the fact is, is that the only thing that brings transformation to a community of faith is that the Jesus in whom you serve is the central thing of importance, that you know him. This is eternal life, said Jesus, that you may know God, and you may know the one whom God has sent. This is eternal life, that they may know me. And I think that this is the most important question. We are often so focused on arriving, but what is arriving? I was with a group of the guys from the church last night, and I was talking about this as one of the reasons we're so deeply offended when our celebrities take their own lives. It's not because we actually care about them. It's because they represent for us what we can't achieve. And we think that when they take their lives, that they are treating something that we also desperately want to be known, to be praised, to have material wealth and success. And many of you have material wealth, but there's, some, there's always something more to want, isn't there? And there's always a deep desire to protect what we have. <laughs> and both of those things can haunt us in ways that make enjoyment of anything impossible, which is what we see in our celebrities when they get to the top, they get all the way to the top of human achievement it's like they climb to a mountain and they look down at the rest of us who are at base camp and before they jump over the edge, they say, sorry guys, there's nothing up here. And I think that this speaks to the reality of what happens when we choose to live life where we define what is right and wrong. That's the essence of the fall in the garden is our first parents chose for themselves to define what is right and wrong. And the first thing that came out of that, that rebellion against God's rule was what? Hiding. They hid. There became division, not only between God, but between one another. They were ashamed of their nakedness. There was even a loss of identity, of self. And I think that the church is a place where people should be experiencing a community that knows the Jesus in whom they have believed. It's one of the things that I, I ask people, like, what is your primary spiritual gift. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, but I am comfortable saying this. I think the one thing that, uh, that I feel comfortable saying is that I think that one of the draws of Door of Hope is that people actually believe that I believe what I'm saying. <laughs> that it's amazing how far that will go. If we just, we're so worried about how people respond. Why don't you begin by asking this, the question, do you believe what you are saying you believe in? Are people that you talk to about Christ convinced that you believe what you're saying? Have you ever heard a preacher where you're like, I don't think he even believes what he's saying right now. That's me whenever I have to preach five services in one day because I don't believe anything I'm saying by number five. Um, and I don't like people anymore, which is really problematic. <laughs> so, uh, but I think faith is, is, is a faith that works is a faith that is defined by surrender. Surrender is the one thing we have the absolute freedom to do. As Gary Brashears, the head of the theology department at Western Seminary said to me when I started Door of Hope, he's, I said, it's God's church, he'll protect it. And he goes, yeah, but you can blow it up. And I'm like, oh, I don't like that. That's too much pressure. And I think that this is the reality of when we choose to be our own gods, uh, our faith is diminished. And it doesn't take long before that, that selection of the self that God never intended 
is that you become a stranger to God because he doesn't know anything about a fake self because he's truth. And so if we want to live the illusory self, the shadow self, continue to decide for yourself what you will do without any consideration of the one who is supposed to be Lord over your life. And that's why Jesus says, I don't know you. They call him Lord, but they're defining him as Lord is because they did things for him. But lordship is about a surrender, a trusting Jesus like little children. Unless you become like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is belief, and this is so important in the church today because when we have that kind of faith in Christ, where Christ becomes like what Paul said, I know in whom I have believed and am confident that he is able to complete what he has begun in me, that we can begin to have faith for those that are faithless. It was my faith in Jesus that led me to believe that it was possible to maintain faith for my faithless father. Like in Luke chapter five, when the friends of the paralytic lowered him down through the roof. It's a mysterious thing that kind of breaks the rules of what we think of as how someone comes to faith. We don't even see that person speaking or saying anything, but it says when Jesus saw the faith of his, friend, of his friends, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, arise and walk. He forgave the sins of a man based upon the faith of the friends in Jesus's ability to heal the man. Now, I'm not saying it's possible to save someone by your faith for them, but I am saying that there is a mystery involved in our believing God's ability to intervene into the lives of our broken friends and family, even into our own lives. There's a famous, um, uh, famous saying from a mystic in the sixth century. It says, when Moses communed with God, he said, Lord, where shall I find you? And God said, amongst the brokenhearted. And, the, and Moses said to him, but Lord, what if I am the most brokenhearted? And then he said, then you will find me in you. And I think that this is the picture of a God who wants to meet us, the belief that God actually cares about our brokenness. So weird, there's just moments where the, it seems like the ocean just disappears, but then it comes back. I wanna be preaching when a tsunami comes, that would be cool. I'm like, man, I, I don't feel like I'm preaching fire and brimstone. You guys are like, ah. <laughs> Faith, a love that labors is a beautiful thing. I'm gonna go really quickly through these last two. Love is the only tangible evidence that we are followers of Jesus. It's the only tangible evidence because a faith that doesn't manifest in love is not, is not a saving faith because our faith in Christ is what allows the spirit to pour what out in our hearts, the love of God. This love, the love of God is a foreign flower planted in the soil of our hearts. It is not something that naturally comes from us. I did not have love for lost people before I met Jesus. I had love for myself and my career and, and, and I loved my wife, Darcy, but she knew I didn't have a lot of love and was on the verge of leaving me before I got saved. It was after meeting Jesus, in, in, but it really wasn't even after just meeting Jesus. It was years into ministry because when I first got saved, I, was, I, w I had sort of a reckless abandon. So radical was my conversion that I kind of beat people 
like uh, I had a very Keith Green spirit. I was touring full time as a Christian artist. And I remember I would go to, I got in trouble. I remember I got in trouble when I was on tour with David Crowder for being so zealous from the stage where Louis Giglio, his manager, called and complained to our, um, uh, complained to my label that I needed to chill out. He actually said I need to talk about Jesus less, but I kind of get what he's saying, but not really. Shame on you, Louis. I, and I was so snarky, I'm like, I'll stop talking about Jesus when David Crowder starts talking about Jesus. <laughs> but I didn't have grace. It was like, it was just, it was, there was a judgment in my presentation of the gospel. Part of the reason I struggled with grace toward others is because I didn't believe that God really, I trusted in Jesus. I believed he was the son of God. I, I, I put my faith in him. I, I abandoned my secular career. I, I, I went into ministry, but I still struggled to believe that he really loved me because I knew all of the garbage that I had done when I was younger. I knew the, the, peop, the trail of wreckage that I had left behind me in my pursuits of music. I knew the abuse and the abandonment that I escaped, went through as a kid, and it was very difficult for me to conceive of a, of a father as a good thing even. And so that, that brokenness, that inability to receive God's love, of course, short-circuited my ability to give love. And we will not love others until we recognize that we undeservingly receive love because it's God's nature to love. Even his wrath is nothing more. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It's the outcome of an attribute violated. It's his love violated. He hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is people. And I think that this, this reality of, of, of a love that labors is that when we realize that on our worst day, Jesus is crazy about us, the thing that brought transformation to Door of Hope is when I began to tell people, someone said, like, why are you always telling them that they're loved? You know, you got all these, like, crazy little hipsters that are leaving joints in the offering box. And I had kids bringing bottles of wine into church. And you're like, what do you do with that? And I like, I mean, it was, you know, we have the largest naked bike ride in the world. I always bring my kids out on the street when it goes by our house to show them what gravity does. That's what I did as a, as a, when they were younger, cause I'm a good dad. Um, I'm like, <laughs> buddy, look at that. That's what gravity does. It's always the people that shouldn't be naked on bikes that are naked on bikes, too. Not to be mean, you know, no body shaming here. Um, it's just so immature, really. I'm like, come on. I actually had a motorcycle break down in the middle of the naked bike ride once. And it was, it was pretty humiliating because they taunted me as they went by naked. I was like, I, this town sometimes, exhausting. Uh, <laughs> But I think of this love that labors is a, is a love that, that, that recognizes, it sees in people. It's, it's what creates within us what um, Harry Blumier's uh, English uh, thinker said is a sacramental cast. It's, it's the ability to see the world through the lens of Christ himself, to see others the way that Jesus sees them. There's a beautiful, I don't remember what book it's from by C.S. Lewis, where he said, we forget that we're dealing with immortals and that, that they're either going to be immortal horrors or immortal saints. But that's what we're dealing with. And there should be a respect in how we deal with people. I, and I think that that love, that love is that, that deep desire, the greatest satisfaction is seeing 
others come to know the living Christ. You know, in the last four months, I've led four people just in my office to Jesus that had never been to church in their lives. And it's not because I'm an evangelist. I'm evangelistic. But it's because I really believe that Jesus loves them and people are really hungry to know Jesus. There's this Barna report out right now that says that millennials and younger are not interested in the gospel. But the fact is, is that our culture is more religious today than it's ever been. It's just, it's a, it's, it's not a vertical r religious nature. It's a, it's a horizontal religious nature because everybody worships. The problem is we're just not worshiping the right thing. And they're not finding satisfaction because they put their faith in things that are disappointing them. Your faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. So people are putting their faith in things that are broken and then they come and they become disillusioned and discouraged and lost and hopeless. Christians are all busy wrestling with whether or not the church is relevant for today while people outside the church's walls are perishing and they're just waiting for someone to invite them to come. And I actually was frustrated with that Barner report because I became convinced that these reports are written by pastors that don't spend time with non-believers. And this is shame on them. We should ask nothing of our people that we aren't willing to do ourselves. And I invite people to Door of Hope every week. And since Door of Hope began 13 years ago, I have shared the gospel with hundreds, if not thousands, of non-believers. Hundreds, for sure. In my neighborhood, my neighbors, store owners. I love to invite them to the church. I love to, because nobody thinks I'm a pastor. You just, nobody looks at me and says, that guy is for sure a preacher. When you have a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo, you're like, your pastor is not even in the top 10 possibilities. So the moment they hear it, I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of the one benefit of looking like a weirdo is the, when I say I'm a pastor, they're like, what kind of church is that? And then I tell them, like, it's a Christian church. They're like, like, Christian? Like, like a, are, you, are you like a cult? When I, we started to I had hair down to the middle of my chest and a long beard, and people literally thought we were a cult. They just thought, we, like, there's a cult leader in our neighborhood. And I'm like, I don't know why you're so bothered about it. Everything's culty in this city. Um, but, uh, but this, in 13 years, I've had one person get angry with me over asking them to come to church. And the anger was just like, they were just like, no way. That's stupid. I'm like, okay. Well, it's great to meet you. We're so afraid of being rejected that we're willing to allow someone to continue lost. That we don't carry within us the, the eternal destiny is at stake. That heaven and hell lies in the balance. That people are perishing. And, and God has chosen to use his church to be the conduit by which they meet the living Christ. Love moves us to a place where we can't not tell people about Jesus. I, you ever see Will Ferrell's incredible, my new favorite Christmas movie for the last decade, Elf, of course. And that scene where he breaks into his father's office in the middle of a business meeting, totally inappropriate. And he's like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. Um, that's what Christians should be like. You have the, you've received the greatest news in, in the history of the world, the one who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, is the same one who has entered into your story and says, I care about you. He knows everything about you, not because he's omniscient, but because he cares. And yet, why would we withhold that? I think it goes all the way back to maybe our faith isn't as great as we 
think it is. Or maybe we become indifferent, apathetic. I close with this statement, a hope that is patient. A hope that is patient. And that means exactly what it means, that Christian hope is a hope that endures even when the days are dark. This is one of the realities in which we receive, as Isaiah 45 calls it, the treasures of darkness. That suffering is promised as much as blessing in Scripture. But when people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? I would be lying to say anything but everything. But that everything is because the gift is so great, there's not room for your own ego any longer. That God doesn't want to eradicate your personality. He just wants you to die to the lie of what he never intended so that you can come alive in him. And the hope that perseveres is a hope that believes the reality of the situation, which is people are lost and the world is not going to get better, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is not continuing to save. I don't believe that we get the world ready and then Jesus returns. Uh, the, all the evidence leads that we are living in, it's, it, things get better and worse, better and worse at the same time. Jacques Ellul, the French philosopher, said two realities that every Christian must hold to in, in tension. You cannot make the world less sinful, nor can you accept it as it is. And I think that when we hold on to a real hope, it is that we believe that as long as there is breath in our lungs and the lungs of those around us, there is, there is the possibility of meeting with divine love. And so I close with this story. My dad, my dad last year, uh, I got a call from his chaplain, hospital chaplain, and he said, Josh, uh, this is Frank. I'm chaplain at the Soldat in the hospital. Your dad's in the hospital. And I, I just want you to know I've been meeting with him for the last three years, which my dad never told me. And it was weird. I always thought he had a little more information about the faith than it seemed like he should. And he was becoming less hostile toward me when I would talk about it. And, uh, and he goes, your dad prayed to receive Christ. And I'm like, what? You're kidding me. So I call my dad. And uh, I go, dad, I just got off the phone with Frank. He's in the hospital, which that was always the best time to talk to him because he's sober. And, uh, and, he, and I, I go, he told me that you prayed to receive Christ. And he goes, yeah, I did. I'm not sure it's stuck. And I'm like, Dad, I, I think God's grace is stickier than your doubt. And he says, I believe that, son. He goes, you know, I pray every day now. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, of course. And he goes, is it okay that I call him the big fella? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, you can call him the big fella. I hope you started with Jesus, though. <laughs> and he goes, I did. But I like to think of him as the big fella. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's, that's fine. He lived another year. My dad died two months ago. And over this last year, when I talked to him, you know, he would go, he still drank. And he would get fearful, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried that I'm not okay with God. I'm like, why? Because you drink, because you smoke, because you can't walk? And he's like, yeah, I just don't feel like I'm able to do anything for him. And I said, what about the thief on the cross? We should be careful on how we judge fruit, because the only fruit of that man was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly, today you'll be with me. Martin Luther said it best when he said, Everything that needs to be done has already been done in Christ. My dad 
got really sick. He, his, his, he fell out of his chair and couldn't get up, so he was disconnected from his oxygen machine for probably about five hours. When the hospital found him, he was unconscious, and so they rushed him in, and I got a call from the doctor at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, February 7th, and they said, hey, your dad's back in the ICU, Josh. I mean, we're all on a first-name basis. He's been in so much, and uh, I think that we need to put him on comfort care. I think that's the only option, and I had to give them permission to not intubate my dad. And I said, how long do you think he has? And they're like, it could be an hour, it could be a couple days, but he's He's in pretty bad shape. And so I said, all right, I'm going to do my best to get there. I got off the phone. I got on Expedia. I booked a flight to Anchorage, Alaska at 6.30 p.m. from Seattle. I drove 95 miles an hour because some laws should be broken. Uh, and uh, I get to Seattle, and I make my flight with, like, 15 minutes to spare. Uh, I get to Anchorage at 3 in the morning and then book a flight from Anchorage to Kenai um, at 5.30 in the morning, and I'm by my dad's side at 6.30. And I walked in, and, and he, was all, he was all cleaned up, and uh, his hair is really long, and his beard is grizzly, and um, he, was, he was laying there, and I, I walked over next to him, and I, I uh, put the song on um, that, that I had just written that really was kind of deals with those moments where it feels like, God's presence is only known by his absence. And I always say that if God feels absent in your life, you wouldn't even use that language unless you had experienced his presence. And, and, and as the song played, my dad immediately started to cry. He couldn't open his eyes, but they had, they had left him off of morphine for a little bit, hoping that I would be able to like at least communicate with him that I was there. And I held his hand, and I'm like, Dad, I'm here. And he was trying to talk with me, and he just cried. And the song played, and then I asked him if he wanted me to play it again, and he squeezed my hand. I just said, squeeze my hand once if you want me to play it again, and he squeezed it really tight. I played it again, he cried, and then the nurse came in and gave him, he was getting agitated because he couldn't breathe very well. He died of COPD. Um, and uh, so they gave him something to rest, and a few hours later, the nurse said, your dad's looking really close, I'm gonna leave. And so I, I put the song up my, my little iPad and the song that I had written, I played it next to his, his head and then I stood over the top of him and he opened his eyes and he just, he looked at me and he just began to cry and I just stood there and stared into his eyes through the song and 10 seconds before the song was finished, he died. And it was, it, it was, uh, um, it was so hard to watch someone struggle to breathe. Like, how can I? How can I help him right now? And I just felt like the Lord said, "Just you are helping him." because he sees me in you right now. Jesus, why are we so surprised that he saves lost people? If he was good enough to save you, why wouldn't he want to save everybody? That's what I think. He used me 
this broken kid who spent 10 years doing hard drugs, being stupid, who got saved at 27, who has no college education, to be a conduit of grace, one conduit among many, to be a means by which he ushered my dad from death into more life. And because of my willingness to enter into my father who was never there for me, to say, not only do I forgive you, but I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to spend eternity with you. God honored that desire. And I feel like the thief over the man, the men that lowered the, the paralytic through the ceiling is that Jesus saw my faith in his ability to save my dad. And he honored that. And it's a mystery. But this is a faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that is patient. And this is what the church is called to today. You are called to be that conduit of grace to the people that are hurting and lost around you. And there's a lot of hurting people, friends. So may the gospel of grace reign in your lives. May you know that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. That he knows whatever you're going through. He knows your fears of your parents whose kids have walked away. And you're like, what am I going to do? I was the kid who walked away. And my mom prayed for me faithfully. And my nana prayed for me faithfully. And now I'm a preacher. <laughs> You know, God is a miraculous God. And there is no greater miracle. He didn't save my dad from dying physically. We all die, one per person. But he saved him uh, from the death that truly kills, that spiritual death, and brought him into new life. And I believe my dad is in, each, in heaven with the Lord right now, enjoying the presence of Jesus. And so this is our hope, and we should not lose it because this is why we should gather as, as a people. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray, and then um, Todd's asked me to share, um, share that song that I wrote for my dad, and I will try to do it without. If I just break down sobbing, please look away in shame. <laughs> All right. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this church, and thank you for this beautiful setting. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would move into our hearts and in our minds right now, in a way that our faith in you, our concern is not how much faith do we have, but that our vision of you would increase and our understanding of your love would increase and that our patience and our hope would not dissipate. For hope is the, the Christian hope is expectation and desire merged into a perfect balance that purifies us even as you are pure. Thank you, Jesus, that your love is an elective love. You choose to love sinners in their sin. We thank you that your love is holy. You're not content to leave us there. We thank you that your love is creative. You produce in us a love that is not natural to our own lives. May we know you and love you. And we praise you this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I, I uh, you know, when I preach somewhere else, I, I get so excited that I realize I need to listen to the words of Jesus when he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. <laughs> so if I went long, I'm sorry, but I'm not totally sorry because I'm just going to go home. <laughs> All right. Mm -hmm.
Do you have a volume? What's that? It is on. It is on. Okay. So. All right. The song is called Home. Some days I just fall apart So many worries haunt this heart Some days I don't know where to start Some days I can lose you in the dark some days I open up to you Speak out the dark and all feels new Some days my world goes back to blue Some days I can feel I'm losing you Oh Will you guide me home? And oh, tell me I'm not alone. Sometimes I feel I'm losing ground. Given wrong still hunt me down Sometimes I can drain a room of joy Sometimes I can't hear you through the noise Home Will you guide me Oh, tell me I'm not alone Remind me that it's alright to cry Remind me if I hurt, I'm alive Remind me that you're by my side Remind me that the light makes darkness hide Forgive me for the ways I drank you dry Forgive me for the pain behind your eyes Give me for the sound of love that hides Forgive me, I see you You're always by my side You're always by my side 
Sometimes I just fall apart So many worries haunt this heart Some days I wake and I'm surprised To find your love tears in my life Thank you guys. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for being with us this morning, coming down. And thank you all for being here to hear that. Uh, we're going to close. And uh, you're welcome to uh, go to the communion table. I, I couldn't imagine uh, a more appropriate time to go to the table to remember the fact that Jesus loves us in the state in which we are right now. And he proved it by going to the cross for us. So thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, enjoy communion and hanging out. You get a chance to meet Josh. Come on up. Okay. Take care. <laughs>